Welcome to the Osprey Podcast. Today we're joined by hemp farmer Steve Barron, who on the one hand is on the front line of a new industry of sustainable farming, whilst on the other has a truly unique personal history as one of the most influential music video directors of the 80s, also with several TV and film credits to his name. We'll get to his full list of accolades a little later in the episode, but for now, let's jump right in. I'm your host, Marcus Brown, and this is the Osprey Podcast. How you doing, Steve? Yeah, good, good, thanks. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. Um, I understand you've just moved to Romania. Um, bit of a strange lockdown activity. <laughs> what, what's that been like? No, 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 I haven't moved here. I'm, I'm definitely not moving. Oh, you yet. haven't moved? No, no, I'm just, I'm on, I'm on location. Uh, I'm doing a, a TV. I see. I'm directing a TV series over here in Bucharest, and uh, we're shooting till December, and then I go to Paris for a few weeks um, to do some post, and then uh, and it's Christmas back in England. Lovely. So how has lockdown been for you then? It sounds like you've been one of the few people fortunate fortunate enough to be sort of still traveling and seeing the world. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't for a long time from March for about five, six months. Uh, I was basically at the farm, which was an amazing piece of luck to, to have this uh, sort of Shangri-La as a, mm. as a place to be trapped in. And uh, I was trapped as well with my, my daughter and my granddaughters. And that was amazing because they came back from Nairobi where they'd been for five years. Um, they sort of came running back because they were worried about everything and they got on the plane and, and uh, just came straight to the farm. And uh, we, uh, we locked down together for nearly six months, which would never have happened in my lifetime. And it was just, uh, so it was a bit of, you know, through all this scary stuff, it was a, a great piece of, um, of luxury and, uh, and rare chance time to spend with the family mm. in a great place um let's talk a little bit about the hemp farm um i suppose firstly to kind of you know give it a bit of context the, the history of hemp um i suppose the elephant in the room that everyone immediately thinks of as soon as you say the word hemp is wait is that marijuana are we talking about drugs <laughs> yeah um could, what what is the difference are they different are they the same how how does it work yeah, I mean they are they're all cannabis. Cannabis is a uh, a particular type of plant um that has many many hundreds of different strains. Some of those strains are what are, what is called marijuana, which is uh uh has THC content content and if it's got that th- high THC content then it'll get you high and uh, it's hallucinogenic and it has been around for many years as called grass weed they call it hemp whatever but actually the terminology of hemp really is more often used to describe industrial hemp that really means you're using it for fiber you're not using it for smoking and getting high because it doesn't have a uh, barely any of the thc content you can smoke the whole field and you're just mm. very sick and <laughs> you wouldn't get high but um so it what it is is a is is a fiber that has been used for thousands of years uh, for by man to create clothes, to create ropes, to create um, building materials, uh, all kinds of things. And so it's, it's been, it's a tremendous advantage of extremely strong fiber. 
and uh, one of the strongest on the planet. And so it, uh, it can be used for, for many things. Um, that's the difference. So, so simply then, it's, it's basically hemp is a plant that can be farmed. Yeah. What are the benefits of hemp versus other natural fibers like cotton, for example? The benefits over cotton really are the water that you need to grow cotton is at least four times the water you need to grow hemp. Wow. And uh, that, for instance, we don't we don't even we don't even use water on on our farm. I and mean, it's England, so you're going to get rain. But if we had a cotton farm, we'd need a lot of water. Hmm. And uh, so it straight away is uh, is you know a much better crop to grow. Um, it's better for the soil because it decompacts. It's better for the land use because you have for if you grow an acre of uh, hemp versus an acre of cotton, you get far more fiber, far more fiber out of a, an acre of hemp because it's a much bigger plant and it, so it grows very densely and um, it, uh, it so 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 you every acre you're growing you're you're getting a tremendous amount out of it. So if it's so great then, I mean, I presume the fact that it's, it's, you can make more with less space and that you don't need as much water and things presumably makes it a far more sustainable option. Yeah. So if, if that's the case and it's been used for thousands of years, what, what happened? <laughs> Why is it not everywhere? Well, I mean, what happened sort of over 100 years ago was that uh, people started to demonize it and uh, instead of it being a positive, it was, uh, you know, it, it, it had been all the ropes for the Spanish Armada, for, for the British fleet, for, every, wow. for everything. It, it had been all of those. So farmers grew it. In fact, at one time, it was law that every farmer had to grow at least a few acres of it because otherwise there wasn't enough fiber for the amount of ships they wanted to build. Um, wow. And uh, so in the early part of last century, like nineteen. 1910, 1920, it started, uh, people started turning against it because of uh, smoke, because of they were saying that you know, a lot of islanders were, were smoking it and that, uh, that it was, they were classifying it all as the same thing and they were demonizing it. And it was then through the 20s, it became easy to demonize it because there were these big industries that didn't really want it to succeed. The oil industry, because out of, they were pulling oil out of the ground to turn into plastics by 20s, 30s. And these plastics mm. uh, were using the cellulose from that when actually you can use the cellulose from hemp from plant cellulose to for plastics wow. and it could have gone that way it could have been a different decision a different a different world if, if, if it had gone that way um and then the paper mills for them it was uh you know they were they were just cutting down trees they weren't growing things it was cutting things down so that was already set up that was already a massive industry so it, it didn't want they didn't want any interference from any other uh source and uh Cotton, cotton as well. The big cotton barons were were a big, uh, powerful organization. So it was a lot of organizations that very easily said, "Yeah, you're right. You know, those those people are smoking that stuff, and it's and it's all the same stuff," which is not true. Mm. And uh, it, but it was it was easy to uh, easy to demonize it in that way. 
So I suppose it, it almost sounds like we're on the edge of a, what would be the word, a sort of belated revolution yeah, really of, of industry. What is required to happen in order to sort of kick that off? Because obviously we're starting to see these places pop up now. Ourselves at Osprey, we've just released our new um, hemp pack, um, which is made of a hemp blend. And obviously we've got farms like your own that are, that are starting to, to become a thing. What do you think is required next to kind of keep the train going? It really needs uh, the value of the crop needs to uh, be set so that it is an attractive thing for farmers to grow because it is, it isn't, you know, it's the technology for processing the plant and getting the fiber off of the uh, outside of the stems and getting the inner herd from the center core and separating it from the leaves and and the other parts of the plant is, uh, is, not around. I mean, it's, it's it's few and far between. So, you know, farmers in Devon are going to have to travel quite a long way to find a processing plant that will deal with the crop. But if we if we set up those, you know, if we get the finance uh, to set up those um, the, those processing plants, and uh, then it's going to be much more attractive. That's that's what's going on in America. There's quite a few of them popping up. They're spending thirty million dollars creating a new plant that will process all the parts of hemp and you know give it give it a great future. Then that's number one. And number two, probably which is also number one, is legislation has to allow the farmer to gain access to all parts of the plant. The most ridiculous thing that we've had to do, and we've only been growing for four years, is that uh, in those four years, the cannabis, the cannabidiol that uh, comes out of the hemp plant, CBD, has grown in popularity on a massive scale very, very quickly. Three or four years it's gone from uh, you know $200,000 a year to $48 million a year uh, of in sales and growing you know, really fast. So... Uh, but as a farmer, my uh, my hemp license, which the police had to check because it's still classified, even though it has none of this THC, no hallucinogenic, no marijuana, nothing, I have to go through a police check to get a license, uh, which I've done, obviously, and I've got a three-year license, another three-year license, my second one, so we're in our fourth year here. Um, but what has to happen is that on my license, it says I must destroy the leaves and the flowers of this plant on site, Oof. not let them lose, leave the plant. So I'm allowed to take the fiber and I'm actually allowed to take the seed. When when we grow a certain crop, there's a lot of seed on it and the seed goes into a nice hemp oil, uh, which you can buy as well. And we're, I'm allowed to do all that. And we can, we, can, we can do that as a process, but I have to throw away the valuable CBD portion Oof. of the plant burn it literally on site or, or bury it back into the land on site. Probably, for instance, our year last year, it was about 80,000 pounds worth of income would have come from our CBD that we threw away. And, wow. you know, so there's a lot of people who are lobbying um, the government, you know, and organizations that are lobbying the government saying, how can you throw this away? This is tax money that you would earn as a country, you know, as a, as a, as a government that, you, that we're just throwing away because someone wants to classify it as a drug still after all these years. It's on the same, mm. it's in the same department deals with it that deals with the firearms. Oof. And it, which is crazy. It should be dealt with by DEFRA 
the farming organi- the main farming organization who understand it and not by the home office in their drugs and guns department who don't understand it it's, it's mm. so that those things have to change legislation has to change uh, to to allow farmers to do it because what's happened is the big heavy pharmaceuticals are encouraging this sort of behavior. They don't want the farmers to, to profit from CBD. The pharmaceuticals can get a license that does allow them to take THC, that does allow them to take CBD. And we, uh, as the small farmers, uh, are not allowed to do it. And uh, so... Not allowed to compete. No. So that's my rant about all that. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, don't, don't apologize. It's all fascinating. Mm. Um, so th- clearly there's some, some legal catch-up that's still required, yeah. even though it's becoming more possible. There's a long way to go there. Yes, yes, definitely. So we'll talk, let's talk a little bit about you specifically as well, because um, one thing our audience might well not expect is that you're actually one of the defining uh, music video directors of the 80s, um, having directed... The, the classic that everyone's jaw will drop at this point, um, Take On Me by AHA. Billie Jean, you work with Dire Straits, Fleetwood Mac, Toto's Africa. How did you land yourself on the front line of hemp farming from there? Uh-huh. Um, well, there's a couple of decades in between. So, uh, yeah, I, the hemp farming was, was really something that – uh, it came out of I got to a certain age and and I felt that I was still you know directing television series having you know doing some really good stuff. I just came off of the first season of the Durrells and for ITV and we got a lot of accolades for it and everything. But I was thinking, what am I going to do for the next ten years? I've I, I kind of think in chapters in in decades in a way. In the previous decade, I'd spent in it. America, the, the, you know, doing quite a lot of work. Then I came back to England for the last decade. And I thought, what am I going to do the next 10 years? What, what, where, where can I go that isn't necessarily repeating myself? And, you know, I looked around and, you know, like everybody did and, and seeing such a mess the world is in. And then my daughter um, had a daughter and it kind of changed me being grandpa. Um, I thought, very differently and i just thought what what am i really what am i leaving behind and you know how can i help what she got what she got ahead of her her future and so it pushed me towards finding a a project and i thought look you know i i i can invest now i don't really have a lot of um things that i that i have to put put money in i don't you know live you know, a, a lavish lifestyle or anything. And, and, and so I, I thought I, well, I'll do something that is in the country world, in the, in the outside world. And my good friend Fonda, who's a co-founder of Margaret Farm that I then, she mentioned that she's Canadian and she said, look, um, I think uh, you should look at hemp because in Canada, a lot of people start to look at hemp and CBD and that sort of thing and, and, and look at it. So we both researched it together and found some people in um, Oxfordshire, Hempen, they're called, Joe McGann. And uh, they were like the, just about the only people growing hemp in the UK. And as the more we looked at it, the more this plant was like a wonder plant, was like a great thing for the environment, for the air, 
for the sea because if you could play do plastics out of it for for the soil because it decompacts the soil and for the health because for our human bodies are are you know we need we need help as well and these cannabidiols uh, which are in within this plant actually are also have receptors in the human bodies and that's no coincidence that means that it's bound to work for ailments and things so Anyway, uh, all those all those reasons just kind of came at me, uh, thinking I'm gonna, uh, you know, I'm gonna get a get a. Th- I've never done farming in my life, but I thought I'll get a plot of <laughs> land and I'm gonna grow some hemp. And just just to know how to take that first step meant that if you know, from what I read, the the carbon w- would be sucked out of the atmosphere, sequestered out of the atmosphere just by growing a field of hemp, is a massive step on its own. And so I thought, at least I can grow it, and then I'm going to figure out what to do with it. And my first thought was, um, I'll get an old, try and find an old farm that's a bit run down and that doesn't have a a building on it, and then just build out of out of that crop. And so grow, it's like a grow your own home idea. So I thought, you know, we'll try this. And this was a triple whammy because I I didn't know about farming and I didn't you know I didn't know about building and construction so um and 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 I didn't know what I was doing generally so it was like <laughs> um it was like guesswork real guesswork but anyway I found I think you know with with films and things what I'm used to doing is getting advisors around because every time you do a new film you you do something new to you as well and so you gather people around you and you get advisors and experts and you 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 get good at choosing the the right sort of people that you, that will help you and and on what level they'll you know they'll help you and so i found uh, i found this great guy in cambridgeshire um who uh, is an organic farmer uh, mike radford his name is he does burwash manor in in cambridgeshire and uh, I said, look, I'm looking for someone to come and help. This is a project. I just want to grow, grow and build and uh, um, and see where that takes us. And hopefully, you know, and he was fascinated by that, this idea. So he just came along and said, I'll be your, I'll be your, I'll do your farming. I'll, I'll plant it. I'll plow your land. I'll get your weeds off your, your <laughs> land and plow it and I'll turn it organic. It takes three years to certify uh, and I'll get to turn a, a previously, uh, you know, plowed field that into something that's organic and uh so he helped you know he helped with all that transition and uh and meanwhile i went to cambridge university at the same time and and uh said look i'm going to grow this stuff and i want to make some plastics out of it and and uh, apart from building materials i'd like to make some plastics. and they came straight on board they've been great dr darsha shah and um, michael ramage both are, are amazing uh uh, teachers at uh, in architecture and in new materials at Cambridge University, and they just came on board and they started helping and found they introduced me to a factory that happened to be ten minutes from the farm. Amazing chance, and wow. they they deal in natural materials there. And so I worked on that to to get our building materials to clad the outside of the house in hemp, and um, so spent the next couple of years building that house. Uh, getting permission, obviously, designing with Paloma Gormley, who came as the in as the architect and did a brilliant job, um, and uh, and really just you know the, the, each year I was car- I carried on. Obviously, I had to finance all this. I carried on directing the Durrells and 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 other projects and things, 
um, whilst we were slowly building this this hemp house, hemp farmhouse out of the land. So we grew our own home out of it, and it got finished about a year ago. Um, and uh, it's it's wonderful, and it's warm, and it's got amazing insulation. I mean, I, I sound like a you know, a bit of a, a hemp fanatic because I'll <laughs> all these things that hemp does. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's, it is incredible insulator. There's, uh, it, the walls are stuffed with our, the center of the plant. Um, and the outside walls are, have the fiber from the outside of the plant. And, uh, so it's like putting the plant back together in a way the house has become, a giant plant, a giant hemp. It, uh, I've been to the farm. Um, we actually shot our lifestyle images for the hemp packs there. Yeah. And I, it is spectacular. The thing that really, really grabs me is that you, you look at the building initially. Um, I've, I've even been doing it with the photos. Whenever I show people the photos, I go, oh, here's some photos from the farm that we took. And then you point at the building and you go, you see that metal looking cladding on the outside? They go, yeah, and you go, oh, well, that's actually made out of hemp, and the, and the jaw just drops, you know. Yeah. You, it's 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 mind-boggling. But what what are some of the other uses that we haven't mentioned? Because we, we've sort of covered them sporadically, but you mentioned there, obviously, it's it's in the walls. It's on the outside and the inside. Yeah. It's insulating. What what other ways can it be used that, it's, that, it, that it just isn't, you know, isn't being utilised properly? Well, it can definitely work into the plastics materials world so because it's 70 percent cellulose and cellulose is what you're using is a building block for for plastic that's what they're using for from the oil and uh it mm. uh, it can it can therefore be many different things it can be made into many different things and so you know it, it, it is it is about we, we have to re-educate people uh, from consumers to wholesalers to retailers into the fact that when we buy an object, instead of the 99p pound store that's giving you the bucket that's plastic that's then going to be chucked in the sea or, or thrown away, you know, into the land, um, that certainly early on until – you know, until we get rid of this addiction to uh, to cheap, cheap, cheap plastic, uh, that we can get to a point where we're buying products and we're, we're nurturing them. It's the same with the fashion world as well. We've got, you know, I think that message mm. is starting to slowly get out there. Don't just go to the shop every, you know, every few weeks and buy yet another cheap shirt. It's not helping anything. Yeah. You know, you've, we've got to reuse. We've got to recycle. We've got to take care of these things and uh you know they they've got to be in the end they they've got to be if they're natural then they can naturally go back to the earth and be compostable biodegradable then we have a chance but right now we're just still dumping so much bad stuff into our onto our earth and into our sea that it's going to come back and haunt us and is is doing that already do you think hemp has the potential alone to essentially solve the plastic problem with a, you'd have to put a lot of money into it i think it probably could but you'd have to there isn't you know nothing has been made that uh, that, that deals with the processing uh, that that you'd have to get to on the molecular level 
to uh, the right. way that you have got to on plastics as they stand right now. So, for instance, Lego is a prime example. Lego will will have a $150 million factory somewhere in Taiwan or whatever. That That factory is producing all this plastic. Now, Lego themselves have said, we've got to get away from this. Our, some of our plastic is in the sea. And they've accepted that. And they don't want to be because what's great is that children – as young as five and six are saying no plastic, no plastic. And they're starting to have, you know, they're having to take notice of that. And so mm. thinking of the future, Lego's plastic has to change to plant-based plastic, whether it's hemp or whatever it has to, it has to change. So that means a $150 million factory in Taiwan will have to be rebuilt because the processing, the, that all those machines that are costing most of that money are going yeah. to have to be different machines at working at different temperatures. Actually, they work at much lower temperatures. They, they, you know, what we're doing with our plastics with natural fibers works at about 160 degrees, where they work at about 16,000 degrees. I mean, it's like a multiplication when it comes to the modern plastic because it goes so into such fast production line. That you're uh, and so cheap that you got to turn them out at one p each, you know. And we won't ever get to that level. So it is a it is a, a number of things that are going to have to happen. That's a part of it is a re-education and a change of habit by the consumer, by the retailer, by the wholesaler. It's interesting. It's, it's sort of that classic problem, I suppose, with any kind of new technology or anything that comes along, <clears throat> is convincing the 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 people making it that it's worth making because the consumer wants it but then the consumer only wants it if it's going to be you know readily available like the the easy example i suppose is electric cars right you you the thought of an electric car is really nice but if there's not enough places to charge them then you're not going to want to get one uh but equally if there's no one buying the electric cars then you're not going to make the the electric charging points <laughs> so you sort of just need those those pioneers uh to constantly shout about it to be having conversations like this and i presume that in good time we'll sort of get those uh those small steps along the road until eventually we'll we'll get somewhere um and, and it'll you know it'll it'll start achieving its potential yeah it's got a I think it's got to come from and is working when it when it comes from compassion, human compassion. So when along came um, David Attenborough and with that brilliant moment in time, what was it, three years ago now? I can't remember, Blue Planet, and there was the plastics in the ocean. Mm. And that that changed, changed the hemp industry, changed the plastics industry, changed everything to a degree, made the biggest impact because it was – your, your heart went out to these turtles surrounded by plastic bags and swimming and stuck and de- dying through our laziness, basically. And it, yeah. uh, it certainly worked with the new generation, the next generation. It worked somewhat on the current generation, not, not quite enough because we're so used to it and we're a bit greedy and, and we're lazy. And, you know, and, but, but I think. I feel it's all going to work as the the next generation comes through because they've grown up with it and you know they need they want it mm-hmm. to change and uh, so um, yeah I'm I'm really hopeful that it that it will 
that it will happen. And it's going to, you know, there are going to be some false starts and there's going to be some things that work and some things that don't work. And it's going to be a struggle to get people to be more careful with their their products um, and uh, not, you know, not just go through waste. Um, and uh, But as it is with waste generally, I mean, waste food is another massive one, which I don't want to get even start on. But it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. We've got to change that. Otherwise, we, you know, all of that, it, we just won't survive with, with that. I have to ask you as well yeah. about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because um, as you may have guessed by my age demographic they, they were quite a big part of my childhood and you were responsible for the 1990 uh, and hands down still to this day the best Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film um, which you which you directed how did that film come about because I believe it was it was an independent to to start off with right and then it was yeah. picked up sort of partway through production yeah, yeah. We, uh, it came about because um, a lovely man who's not around anymore, unfortunately, Anthony Minghella, who directed The English Patient and wrote many beautiful things for the BBC and other things. And I worked with him on a show called The Storyteller with Jim Henson and John Hurt as the mm. storyteller. And it was uh, sort of darker European folk tales. And it was uh, – it was a great experience. Anthony, it was an amazing writer. Just his characters and everything were brilliant. And uh, he uh, he rang up after the storyteller and and just said, "Look, I've, I'm in I'm in uh, Hong Kong uh, because I, I've written a play that's set around Hong Kong, and uh, um, and I'm with these producers, and uh, they've got a comic book that." they've bought the rights to, which is, uh, you know, there's a mad idea about these turtles and this rat and they bought the rights to it <laughs> and they, they don't quite know how to make it. And I said that you did all the, this is Anthony talking, but he said, I, I said that you did all these creatures with Jim Henson, uh, on the storyteller and that you'd know, you know, how to do it basically. And, uh, so he very kindly introduced me to them and they sent me this, mad mad comic book and uh I, I called teenage mutant ninja turtles and at the time although we've all heard that now it was such a mad crazy title and, and mad idea but i loved it because you know i'd grown up through music videos in the 80s where you know anything that was different if you could do something that just had that nobody had seen before or you know and pushed it push those boundaries mm. that's what we were constantly looking for on, on music videos through the 80s and so it, coming to this was about 1988 and i'd uh you know and this comic book landed and i was like yeah this would be great and um uh, so I, I went to jim and i jim henson and just said who love love another lovely lovely man actually and uh I, and i said jim this is a mad comic book and i know it's you know it's got a little bit of fighting in it and things but uh, and uh, he, and he, you know, he was so sweet actually. Um, and he said, yeah, he said, I, I worry about, you know, cause of Sesame street and, and the Muppets and that sort of thing. And then you've suddenly got these nunchucks and they're going coming around with swords and they're fighting with them. And, and it's, uh, you know, it felt, it felt like a big stretch to him, but you know, I, I, we started, we wrote, started writing the script and, uh, get, getting the tone of it. Right. And I went, you know, went back to Jim a few times and just said, in the end, he just said, look, I trust you. Go go for it. We'll build the turtles. We'll do it with you. 
And that then gave us a great chance to uh, to get out there and try and raise the money. But the whole everyone in Hollywood didn't want it. I mean, all the studios in Hollywood were like Teenage Mutant Institute. That sounds dreadful, and it sounds they thought it sounded <laughs> a trauma film, which was a disorganization that where they did you know giant tomatoes from outer space sort of thing, and they thought it was none of them, and didn't didn't want to know about it, and. So we couldn't get a studio on board, but I, I, um, I actually went to uh, Richard Branson and, and got a deal for Virgin, who liked the look of it and sound of it, for UK and for for France. And so at least we had wow. a couple of million dollars for it. But, you know, the budget we had was like seven, seven and a half million dollars. And we only had, you know, the, the Hong Kong company, uh, you know, didn't want to put up any money. They didn't really have that sort of, those sort of funds. So... Anyway, we sort of we thought, well, we'll start building. We'll use the pre-sales that we've got, start building with Jim, showing people what these things can look like, and then they'll go, yeah. Anyway, we did that, and nobody went, yeah. Nobody went, yeah. We were still, oh no, <laughs> we were still, and it got to. I mean, we were just winging it really, and, and we we got to about ten weeks away from shooting, and we built the the creatures, and we were starting to rehearse them and everything, and. Uh, um, it looked like it was all going to to go away, and there was a moment where there was a deal with Fox, and then the guy got sacked, and then we didn't have that. And just about with about four weeks to go, when it when there probably was no payroll for the first week of shooting, uh, wow. New Line Cinema, uh, who were a tiny little independent distributor at the time, they jumped in and said, okay, we'll give you two for it, for the US rights, just two, two million. So that made us, then we had three quarters of the budget and we were like, yes, let's do it. And so we dove, we dove in and shot it all in seven weeks. We had no money to really shoot any further. Wow. And uh, we didn't even shoot. There was about a week of it that we had scheduled that we never shot. We just didn't have the money to do it. And, uh, um, you know, so it was, it got through on the by the skin of its teeth and it really uh um it really got uh it it first started we started realizing that we had something different and well something that could work commercially once the trailer mm. went out about three months ahead of the release in december of 89 i think it was the trailers went out and people were starting to go you know cheer in the cinema and we were oh my god this could be this could be a hit. And meanwhile, as well, through those six months, the cartoon that the, the toy company that had bought the rights to the, to this as toys uh, started putting out as like 30 minute adverts, really, on Saturday morning cartoons at six in the morning. That was taken, you know, the young seven, eight year old kids. How old were you at the time, Mark? Well, I was born 93. So I, I, was, I got into it after, oh. long after release, right, or right. a few years after release. Well, all, all these young kids were were want you know were loving it without the adults or the studios realizing that this was popular. So it had already yeah. it had this growing popularity, and once we put the, the you know the the images in the cinema, it was uh, it went crazy, and we came it came out and it just grossed an incredible amount for an independent film. It was the highest grossing independent of all time at that time. Um, even in the opening weekend, and it made a mm. fortune, $130 million in the cinemas in the US alone. And, uh, you know, it, it cost us 
seven. I mean, they put some more money into the music, and so it's written down like a $10 million film, but it was a tiny little film. It really, uh, we, we uh, had great fun making it, actually. So thank you for watching. What, what would you say were, were the key kind of lessons that you took away from that whole experience? I imagine there are several. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, trust. That was always the way. You just trust, trust your instincts because many times then you're knocked off the perch that you've built for yourself. And, uh, mm. you you know, you're told that is nobody's going to, that's horrible. Or, you know, that doesn't, but you, you know, if you've got, a, you've got a gut reaction, that's the only way you can know. And I think I, I don't, I never knew how to make films or TV for anybody else sort of thing to second guess what other people think. You can only go by what your gut is telling you inside really. Mm. I was, you know, look, looking up a bunch of stuff about it online and I came across a lot of people um, who were just sort of, you know, spilling out the idea of maybe a director's cut or some kind of revisit. Yeah. Do you see any any chance of that happening one day? Uh, I don't think so because we did, you know, the direct, I've, I've been asked that a lot and there's a load of TMNT fans uh, around, especially in the States, and I get quite a lot of <laughs> emails about it still now. Which is really <laughs> and and people saying please do a director's cut and I I just uh, I don't think there is a director's cut because what there was was about eight nine maybe ten pages that we didn't get to shoot that we never shot and that was right. be a more elegant way of telling the story and in the end we just mashed it together with a bit of voiceover but it it uh, <laughs> you know it, there's not much you can do with that you you could put back three three or four scenes that. Uh, you know, if 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 you, the, the, but I think we took them out for a reason. They weren't strong. It was stronger without them. So you know, in most right. cases, you've shot everything and then you've cut it together and you've cut it again because the distributor wants it shorter and all that stuff. That didn't really happen with this film. We only had so much material and a few other bits that were cut out for pacing reasons and things. But it was uh, mm. it was you know really well cut by Sally Menke who was this amazing editor. It was her first film. Her second film was Reservoir Dogs. And she was wow. worked with she worked with um Quentin Tarantino through uh you know through years. In fact, I ran into her at a BAFTA Awards about I don't know, six years ago. And she was with Quentin getting, you know, another award for another one of his films. She stayed with him for years doing his movies. And uh, wow. did all the book fictions, did all, you know all all his movies, and I, I ran into her, and, and she's like, she, she was sitting in a row in front with him, with Quentin, and and she and Sally said, Steve, Steve, I can't believe you're here. I, don't, I haven't I haven't seen you for years, uh, and and uh, she turned to Quentin and she said, Quentin, Quentin, this is Steve, this is this is Steve who did Ninja Touch, and he turned turned to her and said. Oh my God. Oh my God. And so he said, You're, you, uh, you don't understand. I, I said to Sally, uh, I said to Sally, you got to edit with me because you're the one that made Donatello fight. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was st standing there in the middle of this big hall in BAFTA getting this um, kind of adoration from Quentin uh, Tarantino, who, who's, you know, obviously the genius. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's amazing who, who it's touched. 
that's incredible quite quite contrastingly i can tell you how how it uh you know how it affected me which was that i i remember buying a copy at school um i mean i don't know how old i was i was probably maybe six or seven um and they were they were doing like a you know everyone brings all their dvds and do a big swap type or not dvds vhs tapes do a big swapsy event and yeah and i picked up a copy there and i also got a copy of um like two episodes of the cartoon as well and from that point on i was completely obsessed i kept watching it until uh, a far older age older age than i probably should have <laughs> just just yeah <laughs> yes yeah. exactly yeah i actually just uh well still watch it now so <laughs> Are you so? What what are you up to now? What are, the, are there any other projects we should be looking out for at the moment? Um, I'm I'm working over in Budapest, literally now, Bucharest, not Budapest, in Bucharest, <laughs> Romania. I'm working with David Tennant. Um, oh, brilliant! On around the world in eighty days. So we're doing the Jules Verne wow. novel. We're doing eight one hours, uh, and. You know, we shot in South Africa earlier this year, pre-COVID. Then we stood down for five months or so. And now we're jumping back into production here, even though it's, you know, it's getting scarier around Europe. But we, we've got a mm. whole sort of team of COVID op, op, operations people all around the set so that we are kept in these bubbles where the actors are in one bubble and I can you know, work with them and then other parts of the crew move in other bubbles so that we no nobody is really crossing anybody that they're not already in contact with. And, right. uh, so it's, it's not going to be easy. I mean, we've been doing bits of it, but it's, it's not going to be easy. We've got some massive scenes coming up and, uh, but we're kind of inventing a way to shoot and, you know, constantly being tested and everything. So, it uh, you know hopefully we'll get we'll get through it you know and uh, but it's like quite a lot of productions have restarted. I know they're doing Mission Impossible and, and things like that. They're starting, but they're you know it's much slower in in the way it moves and it's much more um, careful. Yeah, I guess you have to be a lot more intentional now. With you know, obviously you have to be intentional with your time before um, on these sorts of projects, but but now it it must just be a whole other level. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, every every minute you you've got to be uh, you've got to be careful and uh, and you've got to uh, you can't do it. the way you do normally do films is director's hands in the middle and say right come on let's move it we need to move let's get the cameras on to this setup and move around to that setup you be doing that while you do that you get the check get the actors checked makeup hair wardrobe costume but now you can't those all things can't all happen at once they've got to be called in one by one. And so, okay, now it's time for the guys to light. Now it's time for the guys to come do the makeup. Now it's time. So it's, you know, it's there's definitely a, a slowing down of uh, the way it is. And, you, you know, you're, you're therefore you're a bit more careful about the shots you do and the way you do them. Because, you know, if you're in a crowd, mm. the way to people and people have to interact with your principles, that is, you know, that's got to be carefully done and you have to make sure that it's choreographed uh, pretty accurately mm. let's um let's just bring it back to hemp before we before we close out um what would you say is the kind of immediate steps that need to happen in order to kind of push that ball a little bit further down the field um with with progressing the hemp story the the things that need to happen are uh for farmers legislation has to change by the government that we have to move the rules and the 
the way that we are allowed to grow it. And this applies to most countries as well. They, are, they have these very mm. uh, stodgy rules because people don't understand it and they are just compounding. Uh, they're slowing down the hemp um, movement and it's, you know, it's still pushing its way through, but uh, we have to change legislation. We have to, um, we have to have people really want to change our materials. We have to rethink materials generally, you know, how in clothing too. And, you know, so, so synthetics, we have to pull away from synthetics and get to, um, to natural, natural world fibers. Those things have to happen. It have, you know, it will happen as we, because you're you're there. You're talk, you know, you're talking about it on behalf of your company, and you know, your company's mm-hmm. mindset, or you in particular within that company, are you want this to happen? You just need to find the path. You need to help find all the the routes to make this happen. You made the bag out of it, um, Levi's. After all these years, you know, 100, 140 years ago. Levi Strauss, I might be wrong with the timing, but Levi Strauss made a pair of jeans out of the, the covers of wagons that have moved west and got to California. So many wagons got there and weren't needed anymore. So they took off the canvas covers. And the word canvas is part of cannabis. The word canvas comes from the, the Greek for cannabis. And so the, they, were, they were made of hemp threads so the first jeans that levi strauss made were made out of hemp and slowly it became it became well that was quite a lot of softening needed to happen to turn them into clothes that weren't too scratchy and itchy and and uh so they then found cotton which which uh is already softer it starts off softer you can get hemp to its level but it's a lot more work to do it or it's it's a machinery to do it what happened last year um, Levi's announced that they were going to do some of their hemp for the first time for over a century. They were going to make some jeans out of hemp because it's better than cotton that den- denim they were using. And um, that is a massive step. The same way mm. Lego took that massive step with plant-based instead of uh, unnatural plastic. And, uh, mm. you know, that more of those things have to happen. And, and, the kids have to, it's education as well. The kids have to be taught and they are, you know, teaching the adults sometimes. Yeah. That, what's the right thing to do? Um, so all those, all those things have to, a lot of things ha- have to happen, but, you know, we're a resilient, resilient world. And, and I, I hope we can, uh, we can all club together and make it happen. Um, let's finish off then with what we ask all of our guests your three lockdown recommends. Yeah. One film and TV, one song or music, and one other, which could be anything. It could be an app, a book, an activity, whatever you want. What are you going for? Well, I'm probably showing my age now. Well, I'm definitely showing my age because the, the film that I've always loved uh, since I was a young, I saw it as a young kid, and it's in black and white, actually, and it's called Whistle Down the Wind, and it's Hayley Mills, and... It's uh, it's this kind of story that I believe sort of prompted uh, Spielberg to do ET, but uh, I'm not sure about. That. Oh, Basically, yeah. they found they found the, these kids are live in Barnsley in Yorkshire, and they find a uh, an escaped convict 
in the barn and they think because of the way the light's hitting him and everything and he's lying there and he's and there's a copy of the bible for some reason near him that he's jesus so they bring him bread bread and, and wine and they, let, and they keep him he says they keep him as a secret from the adults and uh there's an amazing moment in it when a little kid who must be about five years old he just turns around and he says to the rest of the kids it's not jesus he's just a fella Weird moment, unforgettable moment in an, in an unforgettable film that uh, I just loved a bit. Um, then the song is different. I mean, you know, I've loved music for many years. Uh, the album "Talk Talk Spirit of Eden" is genius, and uh, if I if I want to put a record on and spend forty minutes just away from everything else, that is the record for me. Um, yeah. and, but as a, an individual song, the one that kind of gets me emotionally is Stevie Wonder, All in Love is Fair. Um, this beautiful intro that goes into just this, this lyrical performance that just is yearning. I mean, it just gets me every time. And then uh, other, other things, um, well, basically, this is a bit of a cop-out, but any app that helps people reduce waste um, you know, uh-huh. there's an app that you can get that is your local refill truck. That is the app to get. Get, you know, they come around now, and in most of, I know, just certainly in London, they come around in a truck, and they, you know, it's going to be the second Saturday, and you get out your utensils and you fill them up and bring them back to your house, and then you're not buying any new plastic no new waste and you're getting good quality content for those things and there's a number of apps that are doing that now that depend on your area and things but that is the way to go If you'd like to learn a little more about Margin Farm, you can find them on Instagram at margin underscore farm. That's M-A-R-G-E-N-T underscore farm. And if you want to dive a bit deeper into Steve's career, he's actually written a book all about it called Egg and Chips and Billie Jean. That was honestly as much an education as it was a pleasure. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Stay tuned as we have some really exciting guests on the way. I've been your host, Marcus Brown, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Osprey Podcast. Right, if you'll excuse me, I'm off to watch the turtles.